0: Welcome to the Battle and the Bride. Hello everyone and welcome to the Battle and the Bride, where Christ is King and the Church His Bride. My name is Seth Dean, and we have a special episode for you today, and I'm really excited about it. This is a sermon preached by my fellow student at Reformation Seminary, my good friend, Philip Paramore. His teaching comes to us today from Galatians chapter 1, verses 6-10, through 10, and it's entitled, There is One Gospel. Uh, and if you recall... quick recap, right? The book of Galatians is written to the church of Galatia, but it's really churches, right? He actually says to the churches of Galatia, right? And so it's it's, uh, probably a dozen or more churches in the area of what is modern day Turkey. Um, And he's writing to correct the error in the Galatian churches, in the area of churches of the gospel, right? That Paul proclaimed the gospel. It was a place he went himself that he shared with, that he kind of brought the first converts to Christ. And then as he started to proclaim the gospel, he built the church, he built the leadership. And as Paul leaves, the church of Galatia has started to go into false, false gospel or false testimony. Right? And so the letter is written to correct this mistake right and and we talked about it last last week the greeting is very short it's about five verses usually the greetings of the first chapter all right when we read when when you read through it um and he greets them and he and he kind of gives a gospel presentation grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ who himself has delivered us from our sins and this present evil age right we talked about it last week that is the gospel that we are saved by grace and then in six, he immediately turns and he, starts, and he starts to focus on the Galatians themselves, right? And I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read six through 10 and then, I'll, and then I'll go through it. But he says, I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. All right, and I like the tone immediately changes, right, from this greeting to a rebuke. I'm astonished, right? I'm astonished. And the tone's important, right? That, that whatever Paul has to say in the rest of the letter, he gets to very quickly. He doesn't have time for, hey, I've been praying for you, I've been thinking about you, I'm mean, encouraged, right? Most of his letters start in, one, in that way, one way or another, but that he feels an immediate need to get to the heart of the matter and address it immediately, right? And I thought, you know, as I kind of read through that is, it it reminded me of a culture of of misquotes, right? We see it all the time. I see it, man, with political season coming and the presidential race, it's weird to think only two years away, how many quotes and go, no, I was misquoted there. Oh, what I really meant by that or what I was really trying to say or, right, is, Man, how it impacts a message, right? And that is the political, when you think about the political spectrum, um, man, one side says that they said and meant this and the other side said, no, I said and meant this and they said this and meant that, right? And it's essentially a competition for about a year of who can misquote the other one the most and, and get that to the masses, right? And it started to make me think, have I ever been misquoted or represented? And have you been misquoted or represented? Right Now I'm not famous enough or well known enough for that to matter on a national or local scale, but even in my own home, have I been misquoted or misrepresented to my wife, to my daughter, to my kids, to friends? And what was the consequence of that misrepresentation and that misquote? And sometimes the consequence is simple as I have to go back and go, hey, I apologize. That's not really what I was trying to say here, right? Sometimes it's a loss of a friendship or a deep pain or a deep hurt within a relationship just because of a misquote. And sometimes the misquotes are small. It can be as simple as one word and you can change one word in a sentence and that it can be very, very powerful, right? And sometimes it's something as simple as, oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And it's not a big deal. Sometimes the consequences are big and sometimes the consequences are small, right? And in Exodus, you know, it's funny, Uh, This is the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 16. God addresses misquoting purposely, right? And we all know this command is do not lie, right? But really, that's not what it says. It says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Lying's included, right? I'm not, it's still not okay to lie. But bearing false witness, false witness is a misrepresentation of truth. And so when God really says, he's not just saying, hey, don't lie. If, if, hey, did you do that? No, I didn't do that. Well, that's a lie. But he says, don't bear false witness. Don't misrepresent my truth. And what he's really talking to when he deals with Israel is justice, that justice should be just. And if you bring false witness, you corrupt true justice and that God is a just God. We've talked about that before in Exodus when he talks about himself, that he's a God of justice and he wants to make sure his justice is true and accurate and pure and righteous, right? He has righteous judgment. And so when he gives this command in Exodus to the Israelites, do not bear false witness, right? What what he's encompassing is that so justice can continue to be righteous, right? Justice continue to be righteous, right? and that, that includes lying, but it's not limited to lying, right? False witness bears, a, it's a much larger and encompassing command than just, hey, don't tell lies, right? And so when we talk about misquoting and misrepresenting, that can fall under, right, this command by God to his people to not bear false witness against our neighbor, right? And then why do people misquote? You know, and, I, and as I thought about this, I really thought of three things. I think one, and this is probably most of us, if we misquote, it was just a misunderstanding, right? Or a mismemory, right? Like, oh, well, I thought it was this. I didn't, I wasn't really trying to misquote you, it was a misunderstanding, right? Um, I think two, they're purposely trying to misrepresent. That's the political season, <laughs> right? or they quote them exactly right and then cut off the other half of the quote. And so it looks very different when you leave the back half of a quote off, right? Quotes matter within context, right? And I think thirdly, why do we misquote? Because we're trying to soften the truth, right? And I, sometimes I can misquote my own emotion when talking to my wife or my daughter just because I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings right? And even though I feel one way and I'm thinking one way, I try to use language or vernacular that kind of softens the blow. So, hey, I hope you understood what I meant, but I don't want you to be offended, right? And that is the American culture. Don't offend, don't offend, right? Uh, There's a pastor we like to listen to named Vadi Bogman. He says, the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice, right? That that's kind of the American addition to the 10 commandments is, and we're that we need to be nice. We need to be inclusive. We need to be all encompassing, right? And we are commanded as believers to be loving and compassionate, but we're also commanded to be truthful. We're also commanded to be truthful. And I think in Galatians 1, 6 through 10, what Paul's really dealing with is a misquote or a misrepresentation of the gospel that's taking place in the Galatian church. And he's really going to deal with or address three concrete truths about the gospel in in just four verses or five verses, five short verses. And they kind of go as such. I'll give them to you now and then I'll kind of address them as I go through. A, there is one gospel, there's only one. There's not multitudes, there's not different versions. There is one gospel. Number two false gospels lead to hell. Right? And that's why Paul is so quick, I think, and we'll talk about it more to jump into the meat of the issue, false gospels lead people to hell. And number three, the true gospel points to and glorifies Jesus Christ. All right? How do we know the true gospel? It points to and glorifies Christ because it is about him because of him and through him that we receive and have the gospel, right? And so I think those are the three things Paul kind of addresses within these quick, very quick five verses. And so as we start, we'll start with number one and Paul gets to it very quick. And I think the order is important, right? Because the first thing he addresses, there is one gospel, right? He kind of gives his greeting. Hey, everybody there, this is a six chapter book. And by the sixth verse, he's saying, there's only one gospel, right? Because that's important. It has to be understood and his tone is direct. It's a rebuke, right? And it's a correction, even to the Corinthians, which we've been reading in our Bible study who, and there's sexual immorality. Sons are sleeping with their dad's wives. There's drunkenness in church. He spends a chapter talking about how faithful they are and how he loves them and praying for them. But with the Galatians who aren't having those same issues, he, he skips all that and immediately goes to the rebuke. And it's because what's at stake in that church is the truth of the gospel. And Paul has as we continue to work through the letter, man, a passion for the truth, a passion for the truth, right? And so he starts, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, right? And I think the first thing is how do the Galatians, right? Or how do we desert the gospel? And, and, and Paul's very direct about this. We turn from grace, right, that the gospel is built on grace, it's not built on works. And as you read through the entire story from Genesis all the way to Revelations, the truth of the gospel is you can't earn salvation, right? The definition of grace itself is you've been given something that you don't deserve. And so if you can earn it, You do deserve it. Paul says in Romans that grace and works cannot coexist. He uses the word law, but by law, he's talking about works. They do not coexist. Either you earned it or you did not earn it. You can't be given it by grace and earn it. Those two things cannot coexist. The logic doesn't make sense. And and that's why he says, who called you in Christ and are turning to a different gospel. How do you first desert the gospel? You turn from the truth of grace. And you start thinking that you can earn the salvation that was given to you by grace through Christ, right? And and he dresses this. I read it last week, but I think it's important, right? Ephesians 2, 5 through 8, when he's talking about grace, right? And just listen to how many times he uses grace and he's talking about salvation, Ephesians 2, 5 through 8. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the work of god All right it is grace and the and the first thing he addresses with the galatians is don't forget you are saved by grace, not by what you do. He doesn't even talk about what the false gospel is yet. He addresses the truth of the real gospel. All right, and I think the second thing is we are we pursue a truth other than God's. Right, he says, who has called you in the grace of Christ and you are turning to a different gospel, All right? It's not just that they're doing something else, but we start to come up with a different gospel, a different truth. This isn't necessarily a flat out rejection of Jesus, right? Of Jesus. And we'll talk about in a little bit. You can still use the name of Jesus and be following a false gospel. There's people who proclaim Jesus. There's people who proclaim him as the Christ, but it is a false gospel. And it's what the enemy's tricky, right? Some of them are really easy to spot, right? The devil with red horns and a pentagram are pretty easy to stay away from as a believer. It's harder when someone goes, man, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus. You know, I believe in the Lord Jesus. That sounds really good. But then it starts to be a Lord Jesus that's focused on me and not a Lord Jesus that's focused on him. And that's why the third point is gonna be so important. The true gospel always points to Christ. It doesn't point to us or anything else, right? And gospels that claim Christ are not all the gospel. Right? And Paul's going to go on to clarify that there's only one gospel, right? He continues in seven because he says, you've turned to a different gospel. And then just to make sure they know, he goes, not that there's another one, right? Hey, there's only one, right? Just, just to make sure you don't misunderstand me, there is no other gospel to turn to. There's one, but there's some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, Right, And he clarifies, there's only one way to be made right. There's only one way to be saved, right? And he clarifies that this is God's gospel. It's not man's. And this is Romans one, one and two, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, that God owns the gospel. It's not Paul, it's, it's not even Paul's gospel. It's God's gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures right, that, that God promised this gospel would come. And the gospel is about Christ, that he continues in Romans 1. And this is verse three, concerning his son, his son is Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then lastly, the gospel proclaims the glory of God. And this is in 1 John 2, 12, and John's writing about the gospel. And he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That even our salvation is for his glory. And We've talked about that before. That our salvation, yeah, we benefit greatly from it. And we will benefit greatly in eternity, but it is for the glory of the Lord. That God saves to glorify himself because his name is the only name that can save. Right, but not all preach this gospel. And that's why he tells the Galatians, there are some who are troubling you, right? And how are they troubling them? They're bringing a false truth. And the truth that he's gonna go into in the book of Galatians, and he gets a lot more in depth, is that faith in Christ is good and it's necessary, but you also need this, right? And the this that he's gonna deal with there is circumcision. That's not a huge thing in churches today that we have to be circumcised to be saved. Right, But the, I think the, the overall theme of Galatians is the false teachers are saying you need faith plus some type of work. Here it's circumcision, other places it might be baptism, it might be communion, it might be good work, it might be church attendance, it might be time spent in the word of God, none of which are bad, all of which the Lord commands, and none of which add to our salvation. None of which add to our salvation, right? And then he uses another word. He does Not only are they troubling, but they want to distort the gospel of Christ. And the word distort, I like definitions. It means to twist out of shape, to give a false or perverted or disproportionate meaning or to misrepresent. And so if you think about why he's using the word distort, it's not a new gospel, but it's taking elements of the real gospel and it's twisting them or perverting them even the name of Christ. So it looks similar to the original, but it's not the same. And the biggest difference between false gospel and real gospel, it's void of the power to save. It can't save you. This is why false gospels can be hard to recognize. You know, I just jotted down a few notes and there's tons of examples, but Mormons, right? They believe in Jesus. They believe that Jesus died for our sins, right? That's if you've ever had a Mormon knock on your door, they will talk to you about Christ. They'll talk to you about the Bible, right? But they don't believe the Bible is inerrant. They think it has error. They don't believe Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit are one. They think they're three separate beings, which is, poly- that, that, that's polytheism, right? That's multiple gods. And as believers, we believe in a Trinitarian God, right? There's one God made up of three persons in, whole, in perfect loving unity, and they believe we need works to merit salvation, including sacraments such as baptism and communion. Well, that's a false gospel. That's a false gospel. Jehovah Witnesses, right? And this is one reason we read John 1.1. 1, 1. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God, All right? Well, the Jehovah Witnesses translate in, in their version of the Bible was a God, right? That's one letter. And that completely changes the meaning of the gospel. They believe Jesus was a created being, right? They don't believe he was the divine son of God, but that he was created. Well, created being can't save. Only God can save. Islam, they believe Jesus was born of a virgin. They believe it was the Virgin Mary. They believe he did miracles. They believe he could heal. They believe he will come back and defeat evil and the antichrist. But they do not believe he's the son of God. They do not believe he died on the cross for our sins. And they do not believe our debt was paid by his blood, but that we must earn our salvation. When we stand judgment before Allah at the end of times, they believe that they're going to weigh our heart and our sin. Whichever one weighs the most determines where you go. That's very scary for me. I think I do a lot of good things. I think the sin side is piling up. And only by the blood of Christ will I be redeemed. Right. So, just to give a few examples, and I think there's other one, right? I think ones that are probably more popular in the U.S. Universalism: Jesus died for all people, and yeah, we have to put faith in him. But a loving God couldn't send people to hell. If he did, he wouldn't really be loving. All right? That's a false gospel. If he, if no one goes to hell, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? All right? And there's others. Some require faith in Jesus plus gifts of the spirit. If you can't speak in tongues, if you're not baptized, if you don't have good works, etc. cetera, right? The prosperity gospel, And Jesus saved us to bless us. And if we have enough faith, man, we get health and we get wealth, which I think if anyone sits down and really thinks about it, if you look at your own life, it, that just doesn't add up, right? Because there's plenty of people who have faith in Christ that deal with struggle, hardship, death, pain, loss, financial loss. Even people who are being blessed tremendously in some areas of their life have pain and suffering in others. Right. And I think all of these really have one thing in common. All of these are dependent upon us for salvation and not on Christ. It's on our merit and what we do and what we've done and our faith, right? Christ will do this if you have enough faith. Well, I never have enough faith, right? But by grace, I've been given faith that saved me, right? That the answer is found within ourselves and not in Jesus alone, by faith alone, through grace. And this is what really Paul is getting at with the church. It's not about you, it's about Christ, And your faith has to be in him. And by grace, you've even been given the faith so that you can believe. And that's why he immediately jumps in and immediately attacked by verse seven. I mean, he's knee deep in what he's about to talk about. And sometimes it takes him three chapters before he's going to get to what he's actually saying. But because the false gospel is an issue. So he finishes seven that they've, they've looked to distort the gospel. And this brings us to the second one that, that I think Paul's really going to draw on and why he's so passionate. False gospels lead to hell, right? Paul's not a bigot. Paul's not uh, exclusive. I heard a pastor saying, I love this. He goes, Christianity is the most inclusively exclusive religion in the world. All are welcome, but you can only come through Christ. And that's such a beautiful truth, man, that Christ will take anybody. gender age, race, but the only door is through him. And I think Paul understands, has such a deep understanding of this. It's why false gospel angers him when he writes because he understands what's at stake, right? And so he starts in eight. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to the one we preach you, let him be accursed. And just in case they didn't get that, he starts again in nine, as we have just said before. Now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Right? He, he states himself twice. And I think there's three things you can kind of draw from this. First thing, we. And Paul goes, man, even if we're to change our mind and come back and go, eh, I don't know if this is really right. Don't believe it. And I think, what do you get from that, from the apostle? The gospel is not based on Paul or any other man. The gospel is based on faith on Christ. And the gospel is given to man by God. Man didn't invent it, right? Man didn't come up with it. There's not a guy who got a revelation and wrote it down in a book somewhere and said, this is the truth, right? It was given to mankind by God to save. And he promised it, Genesis 3, Right, Genesis 3, he tells the woman, and your seed, he's going to bite your heel, but your, but your seed will crush his head. And that seed, that promise is fulfilled in the person of Christ by his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And so Paul goes, Man, it's not even dependent on me. And he's the greatest missionary in the history of the world. And he says, If I come to you with a different gospel, may I be accursed. Right, and, and I think Romans, this is a good reminder in Romans and what we get when we get saved? And what can separate us from the love of God? And and Paul answers that question. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, right? Paul never forgets to add Christ because everything we have and everything we get and everything we will will get is through the person of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, he says, even if an angel from heaven shows up and gives you a different gospel, which is funny, Islam claims that that Gabriel gave Muhammad the revelation. right? Um, Mormonism claims that Joseph Smith met with an angel and he gave him this special revelation That's why both of them discredit the Bible because the Bible says there is no more revelation. You can't get it. But he says, even an angel, which is funny because Islam and Mormonism don't exist at the time of Paul. But I think God has the foresight to know what will happen. But Satan himself is an angel of light it comes disguised as one. And there was a time where he covered the throne of God with his own wings and praised him with his own voice. And yet when he fell from grace, he became an angel of darkness. And this is what 2 Corinthians 11, um, 13 through 14 says, warning the church about, about the evil one, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light, All right? And that's why, that's why the gospel, the truth of the gospel is so important because the enemy's man, he's tricky, he's tricky. And he disguises himself well. And it's why we have to be in the word of God. Because if we don't know this, then how do we know it's true? Right? And I, and I love the word, but I hope y'all read it for yourselves too and don't just take my word for it. Because all men are fallible, but Christ is perfect. Right? And then he goes on. In nine, and he repeats himself, but he changes a few words. And I thought this was interesting, right? He warns him about himself. He warns him about the angels. But the second time around, he said, and as we've said before, so I say again, if anyone, so not just me, not just, if any person ever comes to you preaching a different gospel, it's a lie. Just to to make sure he gets everybody else in there, right? When you skip down to nine, he goes, if we, if an angel, and then when he repeats himself in nine, if anyone that no, there is no other gospel, there's only one, All right? And then he comes to this word, a gospel contrary, right? And, and he gets this contrast between false gospel versus true gospel to the one preached by Paul, All right? And, and what is Paul's gospel? And he's gonna explain this later in Galatians 1, 11 and 12, for I would have, for when he's defending the gospel he preached, he said, for I would have, you know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man. nor was I taught it? I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, right? That, that Jesus gave him the gospel. It's not something he invented. It's not someone someone told him. He heard it from Christ himself. And then he wrote it down. And that's why the Bible is inerrant because it's not Paul's words. It's the word of God. Right, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and the word became flesh, right? That we've been given the word of God so we can know the truth. Right, and then, but the second time when he gets down to nine, where he repeats himself again, but this time to where in eight, he says, contrary to the one we preached, instead in nine, he says, if you receive a gospel contrary to the one you received, Received. And I think that's an interesting challenge. It just made me think like, he's kind of been restating himself. Why does he change it? Because he goes, hey, don't forget the one you believed. The one you can, that brought you to faith. The one that, and, and all of us who have truly been saved know the feeling of when we've really been saved and you just feel the, you know, you feel the burden come off, right? I think a pilgrim's progress when Christian stands before the cross. And just, Man, and that pack comes off, and he's given the new clothes of righteousness. And Paul's reminding him, don't forget the faith that saves you. Don't forget the truth that saved you, because it was by faith, not by works. And he'll ask him later in the book, he'll go, "How'd you get saved? Faith or works?" And he knows the answer. And go, "How are you being sanctified? Faith or works? How are you going to get into heaven? Faith or works? Right?" And he keeps bringing it throughout the book. He's going to challenge. Them to remember what they believed originally, and because it's easy to kind of be safe for a long time and start start thinking it's dependent upon you, and the truth of the matter is it's never dependent on us, it's always dependent on him, whether you've been saved for three minutes or thirty years, I'm dependent upon the grace of Christ now just as much as I was when I first came, right and he said. You know, and this is, he says, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's Galatians 3.3. All right, and I think this is kind of what it made me think of, you know, dealing with sanctification. John 15.1, and I think most of us have probably heard this one before. I'm the vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch that is in me does not bear fruit. He takes it away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And that's what Paul's writing to the Galatians, abide, abide, abide. And the word abide means continue to dwell in, to endure, to stand, to remain, to be present, right? It has such a rich meaning, right? Because, hey, what does abide mean? Yeah, I kind of know what that word means. But when you think, man, that we're always abiding in Christ, no matter how long we've been saved, we're dependent upon it. Now, I think the third thing that we can get false gospels lead to hell is he goes, man, let them be accursed. And he uses it twice at the end of eight, right? He goes, anyone preach you. Uh, an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be accursed. If anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And the word there is ananthema, ananthema. And this is a really, it's word, it's used five times in the New Testament. One of which we read this morning in Corinthians, oddly enough. And here's what, how that word translates. It is something that has been to vo- devoted to God without hope of being redeemed it is a person or a thing doomed to eternal destruction. And so what Paul is really saying is if someone comes to you preaching a wrong gospel let that person be damned. And that is pow- that is a powerful statement by Paul and that's very un-American of Paul, right? I mean there's a lot of us who go, man that's incredibly unloving. But Paul understands what's at stake. And really he's quoting Christ, right? I think Matthew 18, six, he says, if anyone would lead one of these little ones astray, it'd be better for him to tie a millstone around his neck and cast himself into the sea, right? A millstone is what they use to ground the grain It weighed about 3000 pounds, right? And he said, it'd be better you just to go drown yourself than to lead a person down a a hope of false truth. And I think that's why Paul has this deep understanding of, of, of the gospel that, man, if people who are proclaiming false gospels and in this sense they're saying you got to be circumcised to be saved it's not just about jesus you are leading people to hell and so when paul makes this statement about false gospels and remember and he even included himself if we if myself comes to you with a different gospel let me be accursed right he's not just talking about others he talks about himself too because he recognizes the importance of the truth of the gospel and what's at stake is souls that souls go to heaven and hell based on the truth that they believe. And there's only one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, right? John 14. And then thirdly, Paul finishes in 10, right? There's only one gospel. False gospels lead to hell. And then he kind of gives them this challenge, right? And he's gonna pose it in a way of questions. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. Now, a lot of translations say servant, right? But the the actual Greek word means slave. He's bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. He's owned. His decisions in his life are not his own, right? Slaves don't have rights. They're they're bound to their master because they've been bought. And I think the word slave is important, right? But Paul kind of gives this challenge. Is it about man or is it about God? And James addresses this in James 4, 4. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways, all right? You don't get to be friendly with the world and God. And it doesn't mean everyone just walks around hating Christians either, right? But I think this is what Paul understood about the gospel. It's not attractive to a lost world. And that's why the false gospels are so attractive because they allow me to do whatever I want, feel whatever I want, think whatever I want, live however I want, and I still get the fire insurance when I get to the end because who are you to judge me? And the concept of deny yourself, whether that's sexuality, whether that's money, whether that's whatever pleasure or vice you prefer, deny yourself and follow him, right? And that's why I think about the young ruler where he goes, man, I've held all the commandments. And he said, well, you got one more, sell everything you have and follow me, right? And the purpose of that story in the gospel isn't that we can't have any money in order to follow Christ, but he looked into that man's heart and he knew that you love your wealth more than you love me. So give it away and come after me. Right, the world is, the gospel is not attractive to the world and the world has made the gospel offensive. If you preach the real gospel and you preach it enough and you proclaim it long enough, you're a bigot. Oh, you're not accepting of this or inclusive of that. Coexisting and inclusion are actually hateful lies of the devil. Because if you just allow someone to live the way they want to live, knowing where that road ends in eternity, that's not loving. All right? I don't know how you could look at another person and go, man, I really love you. And so I'm not going to say anything and I'll just let you burn in hell for eternity. That's not loving. The world will not receive the gospel well. And if we proclaim the true gospel, there will be backlash. And, I, and Jesus knows this. He tells his disciples, Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved Right, that he understands Christ understands you're not I mean they crucified him for proclaiming the gospel why why would we expect something different as as followers of him right and so I think Paul understanding this kind of poses the question who are you going to choose Galatians people in Waxahachie? God or man will you serve Christ or will you serve the world right and this isn't This isn't a like free-for-all on, hey, now you can hate on anybody, do anything, say anything, right? There's an appropriate way to go about correcting sin, rebuking sin, addressing sin, but ignoring sin is not loving. It's hateful because sin leads to hell. That's what the gospel says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, the cost or payment that is owed is death, but, The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's the good news. Why does Paul use such harsh language? that isn't very loving, it's not gentle, it's not compassionate. A lot of churches, I think in 2022 would say, it's not even very Christ-like, oddly enough, because Paul understands the cost of getting the gospel wrong. And the cost of getting the gospel wrong is people go to hell. Right? But sharing the gospel requires us to show the need for grace. That means we can't hide the offense that sin is to the holy God. We can't hide the cost of sin, which is death. But you have to share the bad news to share the good news. Bad news makes good news good. Good news isn't good if there is no bad. The bad news Bring the life, death and resurrection of Christ to the spotlight. And what I say, the true gospel points to Christ. It shows us our need for him. The bad news brings to reality, our desperate need for the true gospel, right? You gotta have the bad for the good to be good. Otherwise, what are you being saved from? If everyone gets saved, I don't need to change anything. I'm good. And so where does that leave us, right? The application. I think, A, and we have to cling to and know the word of God, right? How do you identify false gospel? You know the true gospel. How do you know the true gospel? Sunday's help, but you gotta be in the word and you have to know it for yourself because Satan's very tricky. (laughs) The first thing when you look at the persecuted church overseas, they attack is the Bible. They try to take the word of God from believers because if they don't know the truth, you can cut their legs out from them after that. The second thing they do is they try to change the person of Jesus. And historically, those are the two things that always come under attack, the Word of God and the person of Christ. And where is all the truth in life that we have founded in? The Word of God and the person of Christ. And I think secondly, and we have to have an urgency to proclaim truth to those around us when opportunity comes, right? That doesn't mean we're all going to be street preachers. But all of us know someone who needs the gospel. And who are you sharing that gospel with? And some of those people think they know the gospel. And those are the hardest people to share the gospel with. Because false gospels lead to hell. And out of a love and an urgency for those people, man, we got to share the truth. And they might hate you for it. They might hate you. So I just want to read this. I'm going to finish with this and then I'll pray and we're done, right? But I think overall, and what Paul is saying, there's one true gospel that glorifies Christ and it is the only thing that has the power to save men. So here's what Paul writes in Romans 1:16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Right. Let's pray. Man, Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you just for the opportunity to proclaim your word. Father, and I pray for anyone in this room, myself included, that, man, if there are parts of us that are clinging to a false gospel, that you would bring that darkness to light and you would obliterate it. Father, I pray that you would give us a passion for the truth. Father, much like Paul, that, man, a false gospel would just, man, it would make us burn in our souls, not out of hatred, but out of a deep concern because we know the cost is salvation. Father, I pray if there is anybody in here who does not know the truth, that man, that you will open their heart to receive and to receive, to receive the truth that we are sinful and that we are in need of a savior. And that savior is given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, that you love us and that you desire us. And thank you for the gospel and let us stay rooted in it firmly and let us cling to grace always, whether we've been saved for a minute or whether we've been saved for a hundred years, that it is by grace we have been saved and this is not our own doing. And just thank you for this time together. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you just for the beauty of who you are. And we just love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Battle and the Bride. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. For more information, visit thebattleandthebride.com. If you have any questions, you can email us at thebattleandthebride@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless.